Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Sustain Our Software. Today, we have on our panel, Richard Litauer. How's it going? And myself, Eric Berry. And this week, we have a very special guest, Lou Huang. Lou, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Very good. I'm excited to talk to you. We, uh, we were talking a little bit before the show, and uh, you provided us with tons of information. This information is very, very relevant to our audience, but it's also a unique perspective based on your background. This episode is sponsored by GitLab Commit. GitLab's inaugural user event brings together the GitLab community to connect, learn, and inspire. Speakers will showcase the power of DevOps in action through strategy and technology decisions, lessons learned, behind-the-scenes looks at the development lifecycle, and more. Learn how to innovate the future of software development by registering today. GitLab Commit Brooklyn, September 17th, and GitLab Commit London, October 9th. You can find it at devchat.tv slash GitLab Commit. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what led you to where we're at today. Yeah, so I, I kind of have a dual uh, dual track history. Uh, and and the, the primary one, the one that's sort of like my career track is actually from a background of architecture and urban design. And it was a very sort of traditional route. Uh, if you know what architecture and urban planning sort of involves, like designing buildings and streets and plazas and whatnot, working with governments, getting permits, that sort of thing. And I was actually uh, in San Francisco where I'm from. And I had a lot of friends in tech and a lot of friends who are uh, software developers and just sort of seeing the startup community and the companies that were doing things in just, you know, tackling different problems. And you started to see more and more companies like actively address issues of city planning and public space. And we're talking like Airbnb and Uber and, you know, companies like that. And there was sort of this realization that these companies were having more of an impact on city planning than I was as a city planner in, in, a, in some sort of weird way. Uh, and this is sort of where my other track of life sort of started to get melded into it because, you know, as a person growing up in the 90s and just being ex uh, exposed to computers at an early age, like building websites and doing stuff like that was just something I would do for fun. And so I had my own personal website. Uh, I learned how to do like HTML and CSS and I would like make, you know, sites for friends and occasionally have like an odd side job or two making a website for somebody. And so I was already just very interested in tech. It just wasn't my job and it wasn't a career path that I had chosen. And so I started thinking, well, I know something about computers. Why aren't I using technology to, to do my work in urban planning? And so trying to figure out how to like combine the two actually uh, led me to Code for America, which is a nonprofit based in San Francisco that helps uh, governments, particularly local governments, provide uh, services to technology better. Uh, and at the time, it was like, I think in its third year of existence, it was, uh, it was still trying to figure things out. This was in 2013. I joined as a fellow. And there was the first time I started working with other engineers, actually working on actual tech products, not just like a personal website or something like that. So it was a very, very, like, just sort of learn very quickly and I learned so much. It was like, you know, all hands on deck, just absorbing like a sponge, like everything I could learn about the tech industry and how you build tech products. And after that fellowship was over, which is like a one-year thing, I basically just pivoted my whole life to go work at tech companies. And a lot of uh, what I did was uh, essentially front-end web development UI uh, stuff for uh, companies that did open source software or things that were tied to civic technology in some way. Uh, and so most recently, for example, I was at MapZen, which was an open source company that did 
maps and map tools, uh, map infrastructure. And unfortunately, that company folded. But at the end of that, I was like, you know, what I'm going to do is take this project that we started at Code for America called StreetMix, uh, which is a civic engagement platform for street design. And it kind of blew up in the last five or six years where like we did a thing, we didn't know if it was going to work or not. And then fast forward to five or six years later, it had like, you know, thousands of users all over the world, people who wanted features or were able to make contributions. And I was trying to do my best to like manage that in my spare time. And so I thought, you know, what I really want to do is figure out how to make this a sustainable project uh, moving forward. And that's kind of what I've been working on for the last about year and a half, two years. Uh, Richard, I see in the chat, uh, you've dropped my personal website, which is uh, psycho.fish. Psycho.fish is the most beautiful website. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's the only website on the internet. Yeah, basically. Um, Psycho.fish is spelled S-A-I-K-O.fish. Yeah. I actually do have like an actual personal website at luhong.com, which isn't super fleshed out right now, but like, you need to own this one, man. For sure, yeah. I mean, this is also my favorite one. Uh, Psycho.fish says very explicitly at the top, this is Lu Huang's only website. So yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. For those of you who can't see it because this is audio, it's one of these beautiful, like, pre-2000 GeoCities-esque websites with lots of flash and stuff about Captain Marvel and a web ring notice. And a clicker that's just constantly spiraling out of control. Yeah. Um, and I definitely put in the Captain Marvel stuff because that movie was based in the 90s. And like, it's just <laughs> part of the world building of the website is this movie also came out in the 90s. And also, the, uh, my favorite thing about it is if you do a view source on that website, it uses only 90s era web code. Uh, I miss the days when you could do view source and actually understand what's going on and learn something. Now yeah. it's like, okay, they use Babel. Maybe this is a Squarespace <laughs> site. Uh. Right. right. Like what is going on? Yeah. I mean, but this is also sort of the thing about like open source, uh, which is cool. It's like, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to learn, but you can still learn it. And that's, I think what really helped me out as a person who wasn't formally trained in like engineering or computer science is I literally self-taught myself from resources on the internet so, like, you know, just to sort of pivot this conversation a little bit toward, like, just open source stuff, like, this is part of the reason why I think it's so important, right? Because I was a huge benefactor of people sharing their code and sharing their knowledge. And to a certain extent, like, me continuing to build the stuff that I do in open source is is trying to, is trying to expand that ecosystem, right? Uh, it's trying to, like, give people the same resources that I had. And, you know, so, yeah, you know, 10 years ago, it's like, oh, I could learn something just by doing a jQuery tutorial. Now you're asking people to understand, like, yeah, the whole Babel, ES, Lint, yep. like Webpack, yep. React. It, it just, there's a ton going on. But I think, you know, I continue to learn the stuff from uh, stuff that people share. So, so yeah, I, I think it's really important. It's really cool that, that that's possible. So the complexity is interesting, but I also think it's really, it, it's great, right? I mean, I can do stuff with Babel that I wasn't able to do before. Looking at streetmix.net, this is a React app. And if you look at the HTML, there's not a lot there, but the JavaScript enables you to do really awesome stuff by like mm-hmm. having all these different you know, streets and being able to move them around. And that's really cool. I have no idea how this product makes money, but I really like it. And I, I, I don't know. I'm a big fan of, of, of the past five years of JavaScript just yeah. loading everywhere. Yeah. And there's a, there's a couple of interesting things about 
uh, Street Mix too, uh, and I'll probably get into. Uh, I'll start here and then pivot into like some of the stuff I wanted to talk about uh, on this yep. podcast. Primarily, like yeah, how how do we make money? Yeah, how does that happen? But yeah, like just the one thing I want to talk about with the React side of Street Mix is like you're looking at it and it's a React project now. Um, what people don't tend to realize is uh, it wasn't React when it started. Like in 2013, I believe React was at its infancy at the time. Yep. And like I was also you know just sort of in an environment where I you know tried out a few web frameworks you know, did a little like, you know, experimentation with like Backbone and Angular, which were real popular at the time. And none of it just felt, it just felt really convoluted. It wasn't like easy for me to use. I was just sort of mad the whole time I was trying to use those. (laughs) And, you know, at the time people were also, I think, feeling that. And so they were like, oh, let's just do things in vanilla JavaScript. It's like zero kilobyte framework, right? Like (laughs) web browsers are starting to get better. Like support is better for things. Let's just have zero frameworks. I really love that. It actually helped me learn like the ins and outs of JavaScript and like browsers, uh, API and the the document object model, the DOM, like super well just by focusing on that for a while. But one thing that I realized like out of doing that is when you don't have a framework and especially for like as a project grows and it becomes larger, zero framework just essentially means someone's really terrible framework that isn't documented at all and no one knows how else knows how to use. And so it's, we slowly uh, migrated the code base of streamings from largely vanilla, it's a little bit of jQuery to React. And it's, there's still a lot of evidence of like old, older JavaScript kind of behind the scenes, but um, we made that migration and just seemed to like really, really work out. And so, yeah, I mean, it was a lot of work over the last two, three years to make that happen. The crazy thing about this, right? I'm like, I'm kind of excited to talk about that. Like, I could probably go in front of a crowd of JavaScript developers and really go through this process and people would be super excited about it. The interesting thing is that I would say like 90, 95%, maybe even 99% of the end users of StreamX don't care at all. Like, at the end of the day, they don't care what JavaScript framework I use. They don't care that it's a React project now. They don't care that it's a little bit more easier to maintain and better documented than it was five years ago. None of that matters because my end users are urban planners or they're people who are involved in the urban planning industry in some way, shape, or form. And they may be activists or journalists, and they may be people who are sitting behind a desk uh, Monday through Friday, nine to five, at a government agency somewhere or a transportation engineering consulting firm. They use this product because it's useful for them, right? Like, I made this because it scratched my itch when I was an urban planner. I was like, wouldn't it be cool if this thing existed? Uh, And at Code for America, it's like, wouldn't it be cool if this thing uh, was targeted towards civic engagement? But like having scratched that itch, and those are all the, this audience of people who were like me six years ago, seven years ago in city planning, but these are people who are never going to look at a coding book. They're never going to look at a website and be like, how do I write this thing in JavaScript, right? It's not their interest and it's not something they're ever going to really want to learn. And so the fact that I have this code base out there to inspect, right? The thing about open source is like, you have the right to inspect the code, you have the right to modify this code, you have the right to redistribute this code. The interesting thing is, most of the people don't care about that right. They just, it's not important for them. And so from a, a user end perspective, it's like, yeah, you want to write a document. So you open up Microsoft Word or whatever. Do you care that, I mean, if Microsoft tomorrow announced, oh, we're going to open source Word, we're open sourcing all the office. Like how many people actually would care about that? I mean, I think a sub- subset of uh, technology people will certainly be very, very excited about it. I would be very excited about it, but like the majority of the users would be like, all right, cool, doesn't matter, you know? <laughs> like, I'm going to move on. I'm going to keep editing my documents. And so to a certain extent, it's also like, 
you know, that's sort of a, the, the question between like people, when people uh, work on open source alternatives, like LibreOffice and OpenOffice, it's just like, you know, why, why choose that, right? Why would you choose an open source alternative over a commercial offering? And I think, you know, at the, in the beginning, it was because, oh, you know, like some of the open source software is going to lack, you know, UI features or product features. Uh, it won't have the same level of technical support. And some of that still remains true, but I also think that gap is closing. Like basically like every year that gap gets closer and closer and closer. Like I have LibreOffice installed on my, on my Windows uh, PC desktop right now. Yep. And basically of the functionality that I want out of a word process, it's on par or better than Microsoft Word. Right, like there's really no reason for me as a person to be like, so to, to like to say I'm gonna you know use Microsoft Word, and then you get into the issue of like price, right? Some of them say, okay, I'll choose open source software because it's free, right? And then you start reaching into I think the issues that we all like commonly share in open source, and probably I think what a lot of this podcast focuses on is like, well, I mean that distinction of free versus zero cost is like how do you get people to support that? So this is like a really really interesting question to me because. You know, to a certain extent, open source software can be sustained because the community of users are the same as the people who can, or there's like a huge overlap between those users and people who can contribute back to the code base in some way, shape, or form. And this is true for developer-friendly uh, software, like frameworks and libraries, stuff like that. Like if I'm a developer and I have a problem in React, I could presumably open a pull request on React and fix a bug, Right. No, I mean, granted, I know the process for React in particular is a little bit more complicated than that, but like, <laughs> that's a theory, right? And I actually, like, I do this for other libraries that I use. Like yesterday, I just wrote a pull request to fix a bug that was open for a year because that person didn't have the time frame to fix his own library. But, you know, I was just like, I know how to solve this and it takes me an hour. Let's just open a pull request. And he was super happy about that. And it was just great. Open source success story. But I also get tons of emails and requests from people who are like, I'm trying to work on this project in my hometown and we really need to demonstrate like some sort of shared bicyclist and, you know, something infrastructure. And as an urban planner, I'm like, I recognize the importance of the thing that you're trying to do. And then as a sort of technical project manager viewpoint, I'm like, okay, well, these are the 15 things I would need to do to get there. But if I can't prioritize that in the other things I need to work on, then it's just not going to get done. And it won't get done in a timely way. At the same time, this other person who needs this thing, they're not able to, I can't just tell them, go make a pull request and then get back to me on this change. They're not going to be able to do it like at all. They really rely on me to provide a service that I right now, you know, I'm not charging for. So what, what's really interesting for me is, um, you're right that most users of a product probably won't care that it's open source. In the same way, you know, if I go to my local co-op, I'm glad that they maybe donate $200 or something to offset carbon emissions, mm-hmm. let's say. But what I'm going there to do is buy eggs. Yeah. What I want is eggs. And at the end of the day, you know, I take the eggs home. I'm happy with that product. Right. The line becomes a bit more blurry when you end up with things which are usable in code, where the code itself is being used as part of your product, where the users are developers. Mm-hmm. Right? So let's say that I am working on building a website and I need to use a framework and I have the option of using WordPress or I have the option of using React and I have time in my hands and I have money and I want to be able to make something interesting. Using WordPress.com's commercial solution is not as convenient to me as maybe using React and being able to open source it from the bottom or even using WordPress.org's open source things, right? Because what I can do is I have a lot more 
time in my hands and I have a lot more things I can, I can manage. Mm-hmm. So basically where users are developers, then it does matter if you're open source. For things like urban planning and street mix, which is basically a website where you can, as far as I can tell, edit what a street would look like so you can plan it out better and see how things work. Mm-hmm. You're right. Most users may not care. What they probably do care about is that it exists and that it works well and easily. And if there are bugs, then they're going to have issues. And from my experience, using closed source things leads to a lot less fine-tuned control to the point where you would have to say, well, yeah, we can't fix that bug. That's just how it is, yeah, yeah. which totally sucks. And the same thing can be said of very large monumental open source organizations, right? I'm not trying to say that it's easy to make a pull request to React or Angular and then have it merged. And within a week later, you have this huge new feature. Right. Uh, that maybe happens 1% of the time, right? The majority of the time, it's like, oh... Cool. Thanks. This is issue number 517. If you could open a support issue on the Gitter, that'd be great. And it's like, well, wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like one thing that is cool about that is like there is sort of like a community that still sort of exists. There's at least, you know, yes. a transparency to that process of being able to raise those issues that you have and see how many other people share the same issues. And there's something about that that I also really, really like, right? And, uh, and there's something about like the open source ecosystem and the communities that form around open source software, if you're lucky to actually be able to maintain one. And this is something I've personally struggled with with my, with my products as well. Communities don't just you know, arise out of nowhere because you want it to exist. You kind of have to cultivate one. But yep. like, to a certain extent, like, it's similar to, for me, in terms of like, how, and how I relate this to urban planning and community uh, organizing is it's very similar, right? You want, in a, in a functional democracy, you want people to be able to raise their voices and air grievances and collaborate and talk to each other about problems and potential solutions. And we kind of understand that even if the solutions don't come right away, you know, for whatever reason, at least that conversation is out in the open and it's not just, I file a ticket and there's a black hole, like, and, yeah. and, and you never know what happens. I would even say but further than a functional democracy, because a lot of open source projects aren't democracies. Mm-hmm. People don't have a vote. They're not split into neighborhoods. They don't have representational government. What they have is, a, is an autocrat in charge of things who may or may not be nice. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they have a very nice team who is very interested in having it developed, but they're underneath, say, a large corporate overlord. Yeah. And so what, what do you do there, right? That's not a democracy, but it's very similar to other sorts of urban planning in the sense that that's often the case for different countries as well. Yeah, no, that's actually very true. And I ask you sort of like, I, I feel like uh, that's also like a struggle that I'm a kind of, a, acutely aware of, even for my, myself and my own project, because it's like, okay, yeah, let's say I am a democracy, then how do I define who has the right to vote, right? And yep. there's a whole structure involved with that. And so like I, for the longest time, my, my, my own tongue-in-cheek title was I'm the benevolent dictator for now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. For now is different. I've, I've not heard for now before. Benevedicted for life is very common, but. It is, yeah. And I wanted to kind of like turn that on its head, like on purpose. It's like, I mean, you know, yeah, like functionally, I am a, a benevolent dictator for life, except that I don't know necessarily that I would actually do it forever. And so if I just call myself benevolent dictator for now, at least the signal that I'm hoping to send is I, I, I figure out how to replace myself in some way. Of course, one of the problems is that all dictators, whether benevolent or not, will call themselves benevolent. So yep. mm-hmm. who knows? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure there's probably. <laughs> and we know you've already lost credibility at the beginning of the podcast with telling us that, that was your only website. And in fact, it was. <laughs> so I'm not sure we can believe you on this benevolent thing. Yeah. 
One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on, so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from the Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. One of the things that's, I mean, Nadia Eggwall and um, Henry have done a lot of work recently on, on open sources cities. And of course, there's mm -hmm. uh, the cathedral and the bazaar. Mm -hmm. So this metaphor has been going on for a long time of how, how do we yeah. do It's interesting to see that metaphor instantialized or uh, in the flesh. There's a word I'm looking for, in, incarnate. Yeah. As, as the guy in front of us on this podcast, that's pretty awesome with your, your dual backgrounds. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the metaphor. I, the metaphor is so great. Like it was something that like I, I immediately drawn to when I entered like just working in tech and just seeing how many words used in development, like, even the word development, build, like all of it comes from architecture. The idea of design patterns was invented by an architect, yep. uh, Christopher Alexander. And so, yeah, I mean, I, the reason why like I immediately joined in Nadia Eggball's work when she published her paper on roads and bridges was immediately, I was like, I know what this metaphor is and what it means. And it's so true. Mm. One uh, of the things uh, which we haven't mentioned, which... I think it's also relevant to open source products versus not open source projects. If you don't mind me going back to that, because again, you you said a lot, so I think people are becoming more aware of privacy issues over time. I use Firefox because it's open source and I trust it. Chrome has a black box in part of it where mm -hmm. I don't know what's going on. I don't know where my stuff is being reported to. I don't know if it's going to an ISP or to Palantir or to a government or to mm -hmm. my VPN. Not that I have anything to hide because who has anything to hide, right? But because I believe in civil liberties mm -hmm. and using Firefox enables me to have those civil liberties because I trust that nowhere down the stack of developers is anything going amiss. Shaw could be broken or whatever, but you know, the, the, whatever happens. But I think this is coming, becoming more common where more people are saying, oh, open source means that the source code has been, is available so people can look at it and see if there's any, any issues in it. Right. I don't know how common that is outside of the developer community. But I have friends who don't code at all who use Signal, mm -hmm. um, which is pretty cool. So that's another thing which I think is, is really relevant to open source. And this goes all the way back to, you know, Richard Stallman, the early days of if you have a proprietary OS, then you're, you're going to get screwed. Yeah. And I think like, you know, when this kind of thing is uh, talked about in terms of like where it touches people's lives, like it starts to make sense, right? Like yeah. people talk about how voting machines should be open source. Otherwise, you don't know if your vote is being counted or counted properly or at all, right? When people like understand that, I think it definitely helps. And, and the thing that I started thinking about, like, if you are more aware or if we raise awareness 
of how those aspects of open source software will impact kind of your representation or your privacy or your data? Like, is that a choice that you then make as sort of a conscious consumer, right? Like, do you make that choice because you like the organic label on your eggs or you like the free range labels and you go buy those eggs from your co-op and say like, I'm making a conscious decision to buy produce that was farmed or raised or uh, uh, created sustainably. Do I then make a conscious decision to go with software that has a sustainable or, you know, ethical goal or whatever. And I think it's also interesting in terms of just the word sustainable, right? Like I think in the context of sustaining open source, we talk about sustaining as like keeping the project alive, right? Just supporting the people who work on the project. But I think there's like, in terms of like the sustainability world, there's a sort of like the three-legged stool of sustainability. What is the three-legged stool? So the three-legged stool of uh, sustainability um, is economic, social, and environmental. So when you say something sustainable, ideally you want to hit all three of those if you can, right? So economic sustainability is the one that we tend to talk about when we talk about sustaining open source, which is how do we fund this project? How do we pay for the people who are working on it? And, you know, even if you have like a a product inside of a company that, you know, has investors, it's like, okay, well, economic sustainability is like the thing that we focus on. The two things that are also part of sustainability is uh, social and environmental. So a social being like, what are the social goals, objectives that we're trying to achieve with this endeavor. And environmental is also sort of like a very public good thing, but focus on the built environment or uh, the ecology uh, of a thing, as opposed to like the people. And so ideally you want to hit all three of these. You know, to a certain extent, when I talk about, when we talk about like sustainable open source, is that a choice you can make? Is that is the choice that you can make for software that you use or consume if you're not a developer and you're not necessarily focused on, well, how does this thing help me technically? Could you make a decision based on, but I think this is going to be good for the environment, or I think this is going to be good for social justice, that sort of thing. So yes, you can, but there are obviously trade-offs. One of my favorite examples of this, Kevin Kelly raised this for me in some of his podcasts or talks, is Mennonites and the Amish. So a lot of people think that they just, just decide point blank, no electricity, get out of here. The Weird Al song is totally accurate. And that's not really the case. Rather, what t- tends to happen is that they have small communities of around 150 people. And when it gets larger than that, they split up. And they decide together as a community, hey, given this new thing that we just heard about, will it be useful for us or not? Will it bring us closer as a community? Will it help us keep our values or will it not? And so if you go, you know, I was driving through North northern New York the other month and I pass a lot of Amish houses and some of them had tractors, which was pretty cool. Granted, they were still wearing bonnets and dresses and had horse-drawn carriages. But the tractor was really useful in that you need less manpower for the fields and it doesn't necessarily destroy the community, but it's a useful tool. Mm-hmm. And so there are definitely other, other things which are more applicable to the people listening to this podcast, none of whom are probably Amish. If you are, hello, great. So for instance, there's a recent article came out, I believe it was the New York Times, might have been Intercept or Guardian, generic liberal news media, awesome about someone who decided to not use any of the large networks, not use Facebook, not use Microsoft, not use Twitter, and how difficult that was and how hard it was to basically just completely cut these things out of your life. 
I went over to a friend's house the other month in the Czech Republic. He's a Fulbright scholar of archaeology. And I went to like his lovely little apartment. And I'm like, what's the Wi-Fi? And he says, I don't have any Wi-Fi. I have books. I read books at night. And I was like, wow. Wow. And I didn't really know what else to say, except this is awesome. But he has obvious trade-offs in that he literally just can't get signal. And he can't check things late at night. And he can't keep in touch with it by email as much. Mm-hmm. But the other time, he was much calmer and more well-read than I was. So where does that lead you? So in the same way with open source, getting back to the original point, yes, you can decide I'm only going with open source products, but then you end up with Linux installed on your computer and you've lost 30 hours when really what you needed to do was open a spreadsheet in Google Sheets and send it to a friend of yours. Right. There's the old saw that you know Linux is free if you don't value your time. And I think a lot of open source is that way. Which is really unfortunate, although, as you mentioned at the beginning, it is getting better because a lot of people are starting to invest in better UX for open source, better UI for open source, better constitutional bylaws for small committees, people running things that are really important for open source, which I really love. Yeah. So, yeah. And some of this stuff, like, too, like, just because the community is continuing to exist and they continue to support it, like, you know, they're gradually investing in reducing some of those trade-offs that you have to make. Like, cause I've been in that exact same boat where, you know, through my life, I've probably two or three times tried to invest some time in a learning how to install some Linux distribution on a partition on my computer. Yep. And it's always been a thing where, you know, okay, that was a fun experiment, but it's not going to be my day-to-day, you know, thing. But, but like I brought up LibreOffice particularly because at this point, it's just like, it does exactly what I needed to do. And so the trade-offs, like, it's fine. You know, I think, like, the question then, too, is it's like, okay, uh, as an individual, you can make a decision like that, right? At a corporate level, your trade-off might be, well, we need, you know, massive enterprise support for this thing. Um, and so that's why Microsoft Office still makes sense for us over, I don't know if LibreOffice has, like, enterprise offerings or maybe there's an ecosystem of people who can provide that, but... Um, but yeah, like the, the scale of the trade-offs become huge at like an enterprise level, right? And so an individual level, not so much. Going back a little bit to um, how I'm trying to fund street mix. And the question is like, you know, if I can't have an enterprise offering because I don't have the infrastructure or the manpower for that, could I at least support the project by uh, on an individual basis? Like, so I know I have thousands of users. None of them are going to contribute to the code in any meaningful way, but the, at the at the same time, they are deriving a massive amount of value from it personally. And at what point does it make sense to say, you are subscribing to a software not as a company, but as an individual? Like, is that even doable? Is that even possible? Could I potentially ask someone to say, you're subscribing to StreetMix the same way you subscribe to Spotify, right? And of course, like, you know, you know skip over the fact that there's plenty of people who, who don't pay for Spotify either or share Spotify accounts because they don't want to pay $10 a month. But, you know, there are people who say things like, who go to Patreon and say, like, I support this artist or I support this creator and I get some, you know, additional stuff on the top of the stuff that they produce and that helps support that project. Like, what is the message behind a product like StreetMix who has users that aren't technical, who can't contribute back to the original code base, but still want to support it somehow uh, financially? How do, we, how do we create that message? That's tough. One of the things I really like as an answer to that is dual licensing or dual user models where you have individuals who can be bleeding heart givers. Hey, you know, this is really cool and I use it. 
you could have individuals who just use it so much that they feel like they ought to give back. I guess that's the same. Well, what do you mean by dual licensing? Like, what is that? So then for companies, yeah. right? So let's say for Street Mix, I'm an urban planning design student. I'm going to University of McGill. I use it to plan some homework assignments for how to redevelop the plateau and add in bike lanes, right? So, hey, this was really useful to me. I can spend $5 to just say thank you. Now you have $5. It's probably going to be a one-off because I'm a broke student. But let's say you're actually the New York City planning department. You have a lot of subdivisions. There's several hundred people working on staff at least. Or even better, you're a trans state thing. So maybe a federal thing looking at uh, flood water rising in um, coastal cities. And you've been paid by various different grants from the departments to try and figure out how to actually make this not an issue and stop New Orleans from happening again next year. So if I have a thousand people who are using this software, maybe I just want to give $5,000 per, per year, right? And maybe I want to send a wire and I want to send an invoice and I want to say, this is incredibly useful. And then we're going to actually put it on our letterhead that people who sign up to work at our company or subcontractors should use this site to figure things out because they exports in a pretty easily usable model. In that case, you're not really dependent on bleeding hearts so much. You're depending upon, well, we want this to survive in the future. And so having a model where people like that can pay is really useful as opposed to only having a model where you have to donate. Does that make sense? Yeah, it actually does. And it, and it reminds me of, there's, there's a tweet that I've bookmarked from uh, Swift on Security, who ostensibly, if you don't know, awesome it's a tweet. very popular account, but like it's Taylor Swift who works in information security. Not the actual Taylor Swift, although we I, don't know. We don't I like, know. I like to think my headcanon, my personal headcanon, it, is, it really is Taylor Swift. Absolutely hands down is Taylor Swift. But she's got a great tweet that basically says, you know, if you, I might as well just read it out loud. It says, corporate purchasing and policies make funding open source literally impossible. Nothing's going to change unless you make them pay you. It's literally easier to pay you $1,500 a year than $25 once. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about, Richard, is, you know, the, the support contract model. It's like, it is. Yeah. It is. To be clear, I also read that before this podcast. So I'm glad you brought it up so I can say a lot of the th- thinking came from that just now. Although I've also seen dual license elsewhere. Kyle Smith has a really awesome dual license. Uh, Kyle Mitchell, sorry, called License Zero, where you can actually dual license uh, packages on the command line for NPM, which is really interesting for business side. Uh, For more product-based things, I think you need a bit more than just licensing. You probably need a mechanism where it's easier for you to go through vendor management. You need a mechanism where people can send you... um, W9s and point of contacts and those sorts of things, which uh, Swift and Security does get into in the tweet. And it's linked in the show notes. Swift and Security, by the way, is not always the nicest or most uh, politically correct person. So take what he says with a grain of salt. We're not endorsing all of his opinions. Uh, this particular tweet is interesting for anthropological reasons and it's relevant to this podcast. But yeah, I don't like a lot of the things he says. So <laughs> in general, okay, okay, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. But I had this tweet bookmark for sure because it's like it's and, and to a certain extent, I think like. Um, oh no, me too. Like I just had to go through an entire vendor process for a large client where I'm literally now certified as bisexual because they found it easier for them to actually pay me that way. Oh wow! Which is like the weirdest thing I've ever had to do was go around and be like. Do I have to have friends write in saying I am? Okay. Um, <laughs> Can we have some references, please? <laughs> yeah, like literally I had to send in references. But 
the benefit is now a large company is able to fast track me money a whole lot easier than it would have been to just say, here's my wired account or here's my PayPal. Yeah. Eric, you're shaking your head creepily. No, I'm just, I'm just baffled by this conversation. I mean, I, I very much feel like a, a listener instead of a contributor to this conversation because you guys are both giants in this area. The fact that you have to do that to get paid blows my mind. Yeah, it's ridiculous, but it's also capitalism, right? Yeah. Right. It is. This is the stuff that you just can't make up. You know, the, the cliche, you can't make this stuff up. You can't make that up. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I really feel for you and, and, and also listeners who are like, what the heck is going on? Because like, none of us gets into this business of like working on open source or cool projects like because we want to deal with any of this stuff. Like, no, the, good the, Lord. Us, right? And so I was like, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to have to figure this out. But you kind of have to, you know? Yeah. You do have to. You do have to. And at some point, we all have to deal with mortgages. And we all have to deal with credit cards and credit. Unless you want to become my dad and live in a car on the beach. And just say, you know, I'm just going to take my social security. And I'm just going to surf all day. Which honestly just sounds every day more and more like, I just maybe like that's just the way to go. You know, I converted my element into a camper. I, I, I totally know the feeling. Yeah. I, on the on the upside of that, I know where my food is coming from tomorrow. I know where my food is coming from next month. Mm-hmm. And I find that to be really nice for my social, you know, mental security. So again, it always comes back to trade-offs. And part of the things with working with corporate is that you need to jump through certain hoops. And the hoops aren't particularly hard. They're just weird to figure out where the edges are. You don't often get sliced, but you certainly have to rebound and jump again every now and then. Mm-hmm. So in the same way, working with money as an open source participant, as someone who develops, it is not as simple as putting up a PayPal, here's my email, send me money. It's not as simple as setting up an open collective. It's not as simple as setting up a Patreon or setting up a wired account with a little letterhead for your business that's an LLC that you've registered in Wyoming instead of Delaware because you wanted more privacy. But Delaware is actually pretty fine too. And then actually you had to have a chartered accountant who came from New York to set up the thing, blah, 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 blah. It's actually all these things together and figuring out how can you make it easy for people to support the work you do. Mm -hmm. And is it worth the time? And if not, do you want to do something else in order to fund your open source work? And it's really tough. It's a a lot of discussions, again, trade-offs. But I just want to thank you, Lou, for for bringing this into it. And you have also a really awesome perspective on it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just like glad to be part of this conversation. I mean, I honestly don't know what else. I mean, like, you know, like whether like what I say is is new to people or interesting or like or, or whatever. But I, I think what's so important about even just conversations like this and listening to conversations like this is like at the very least, you know, you're not alone. Right. You know, we're all kind of facing very similar parts of the same beast of a problem. And it's just it's just really helpful to be part of it. Totally. Speaking of knowing we're not alone, I think this is probably a pretty good place to wrap this up. Lou, where can people find you? Great question. So I do have an actual website, which is at luhong.com. But yeah, obviously not as good as psycho.fish, S-A-I-K-O dot F-I-S-H. You can find StreetMix at streetmix.net. And uh, I didn't really talk about this, but you can find uh, another uh, organization. I'm part of a creative collaborative group of folks um, working under an organization called the Bad Idea Factory, and that's at B-I-F-F-U-D.com. So Bad Idea Factory, B-I-F, and then 
FUD for what, what is this? What, what is this I, bad idea? Of I, love, I love that it ends in FUD. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's that's not that intentional. It's an intentional acronym, right? So the acronym for Bad Idea Factory, we just tacked F-U-D at the end of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're basically a group of people that found it to be easier to do uh, creative projects by forming an LLC, which again, like if you've never made a company before, it is one of the most brain dead easy things you can do. Like yep. people are thinking, oh, starting a business is so hard. I mean, running a business is hard. Starting a company is easy. You just fill out a form and you pay the state like 20 bucks for whatever it is, right? Anybody can make an LLC. Uh, and sometimes like that, having that infrastructure is just makes it easier for, for individuals to be able to get grants or contracts uh, through uh, certain people. And then it turns out once you get 20 people under the banner of a thing with an about page and some profiles and someone else stumbles on it. Suddenly it's a thing. Suddenly it's a thing. They're like, oh, you have all these talented people. How do we pay you to do stuff? And so like there are people, I mean, I don't actually make a ton of- I'd like to announce the Sustain Open Source Stupidly uh, Foundation. If you're interested, send me an email. And as soon as we get 20 people, we'll get an LLC going. So that's sustainopensourcestupidly.com. I would love for that to happen, by the way. Just just saying, if 20 people write, we'll set up an LLC and it's going to be awesome. Yeah, this is this is great. Yeah, this is, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely hope that we can sort of um, make this model like be a thing that, that, that more people take advantage of. I'm currently buying sustainopensourcestupidly.com <laughs> because that's what I do. Okay, thank you. That's awesome. The thing that I believe most about top-notch developers is that they're constantly learning. Whether you're out watching videos, whether you're reading blog posts or books, whether you're out writing open source software, you're always out there learning how to be a better developer. And my friends at Thinkster and I teamed up and we put together a show called the DevEd Podcast. You can find it at devedpodcast.com. It's run by Joe Eames, who you might know from JavaScript Jabber, Adventures in Angular, and Views on View. And they have terrific conversations about what it means to become a better developer, to learn how to do development, and the ways that you can learn. So if you're looking for inspiration and ideas about how you can do better and learn better as a developer, then go check out the DevEd podcast. Another part of this, of this podcast, because it's a devchat.tv podcast, is picks, mm. where we choose three things that we want to share that have been meaningful, interesting, or otherwise totally irrelevant to our lives recently. Eric, do you want to go first? Uh, yeah, I actually have a handful of picks today. The first one is... It's actually your website, uh, Richard, and you, you showed it to me yesterday. I can't find looking for it. I didn't bookmark it, so, but it's the, the beer review. So what's the, the website? Theuserisdrunk.com. Theuserisdrunk.com. So, so Richard gets like totally blast, like loaded, right? Like completely drunk and then goes and reviews websites UI and user experience. It's so good. I'm, so you gotta, I'm, glad I, I'm glad I brought you joy. Oh my gosh! And then, <laughs> and you can tell, like right at the end, when you start getting a little bit more serious, like okay, I'm done. <laughs> I'm out. Oh, it's so funny. The other one I have, I have, like I said, I have three. So the other one I have is this book called Unblocked by Alison McCauley. And this book is incredible. It kind of bridges the gap between uh, Web two style modern developers and modern companies and thinking, okay, well, what is this Web3 thing? What is blockchain? How does it impact us as a company? How can it impact the world? Right now, there's so much hype around things that really shouldn't be hyped. 
uh, that that overshadows the 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 true value of what the blockchain offers. So this book is really a really a fascinating book. And then the last thing I got to say, and I love Microsoft. I was recently over at Microsoft uh, last week. I gave a talk at a conference over there, and I looked around and I saw everybody having these service books. And I'm like, oh man, I got this this big old laptop that weighs a ton, this MacBook Pro that weighs a ton, and and I've got this iPad. So I've got the iPad Pro. Like the really stupidly expensive one, right? I paid probably $1,500 for it with everything. I know you could pay a lot more for it, but that's the one I got. And I had this envy, like this envy looking around, looking at everybody's. And so yesterday I got got so frustrated. So I'm like, I'm going to go buy me one. So I went over to Costco. I bought me, I got, I bought me this Surface, the Surface Pro 6, brought it home, set it up. And I'm like, I can't do it. I can't do it. And it made, so my pick is actually, and I'm not poo-pooing on, um, on Microsoft, but my pick is actually the iPad Pro. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I decided the grass is greener on the other side. I jumped over. I'm like, ugh. <laughs> so jumped back. And now I absolutely love the iPad Pro because the functionality is so smooth and the user experience is so smooth. I'm just hoping that the time will come when we can do full development and turn that into a functional machine versus just a right now, currently my golf game tool and my email reader. It's a very expensive golf game and email reader. Sorry. That's a very long picks, but those are my picks. That is long, but that's okay. Lou, you got some? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, the first one I'll start with is a YouTube talk that I uh, did uh, write down as sort of an influence for the stuff I've talked about today, but like I didn't really bring it up during the course of the conversation. So I'll just take this opportunity to shout out this talk by CJ Silverio, who's the former uh, CTO of MPM. And she's got this talk. Uh, she's called awesome. the, uh, the, yeah, she's great. The, and, and I didn't really know any of her work from before, but like I listened to this talk called The Economics of Open Source, where she talks about just sort of like, you know, the sort of decisions that went into how MPM evolved over time and how like the differences in, in motivation between, you know, investors and people in power, et cetera, kind of created a situation where, well, I don't want to also get into all the, the you know, whole conversation about NPM and kind of what happened with them over the last few months. But, you know, if that's something you're interested in, like that YouTube talk is super, super good. And then just sort of at the casually at the end of it, it just drops, oh, now we have a new open source package manager that's truly community owned, whatever. So I'm actually really interested to see where that goes. And the talk is just great. And it really kind of helps me sort of also, you know, continue to develop my own thoughts about like how I want to run open source products um, as well. So that's my first pick. The second pick I have is the Netflix documentary, The Great Hack. I don't know if anyone's talked about it here yet, but I just watched it yesterday and it's very, very good. And it's the story about how uh, Cambridge Analytica used data from Facebook to essentially influenced the election for uh, Donald Trump and for Brexit, and also just a bunch of other things that they've been doing around the world. It's not like they've just done two projects. They've done a bunch of different things. And it's, it's very well done. It's very, it's a, it's a, the story is super compelling. Like they presented it like from the perspective of a couple of the people who are involved uh, at Cambridge Analytica. And so, so it's just really kind of eye-opening it's also a little bit depressing when you watch the thing and you think, well, yeah, I mean, that's social media. That's what social media does to us. That's how it's impacting or affecting democracy. It's how it's affecting society. But I think like 
the weird, strangely like optimistic takeaway that I have from it is that to a certain extent, like super hateful, racist speech isn't necessarily something that arises naturally from like 50% of people in the country. That's not what happens. What happens is that some actors with bad intents stoke fear and hate in a small segment of people who are highly persuadable, is the term they used, to create these divisions. Uh, and that takes effort. That takes real effort to create. It's not that we are, we are naturally hateful people. It is that this stuff has to get cultivated. And that is actually just sort of really optimistic for me because it also means that that's something you can target, you can, uh, you can fight back on. So it's a really, really great documentary. I highly suggest watching it at some point. Uh, and then the last thing is uh, some eBooks called The Imposter's Handbook. And I think there's actually two of these now. It was like, a, there's book one, there's book two. I've read book one so far. I'm an imposter, should I read it? So it's, it's targeting, yeah, like if you have what's called imposter syndrome, if you're in the tech field and you feel like you don't belong because you didn't have a, a computer engineering degree and there's certain things about like technology and computers, you're just never really going to, you just don't, you've never understood. And that's something I feel, right? Because it's not my background. Then uh, what, they, what this person did was uh, wrote, write a book that explains a bunch of computer science concepts in a way that's really, really uh, easy to grasp. And uh, uh, the most valuable thing t- for me is don't just read the book, but they also link to like videos and blog posts and resources that really dive deep on certain topics. And so if you really, really want to know about like Lambda calculus and the Y Combinator and like why that's important in computer science, like I went down a really deep dive on that stuff as a result. And now I'm like, oh, I understand what it is. It's not just a Paul Graham incubator. Like the Y Combinator is a thing that enables recursion in like in, in logic and stuff like that. So I'm sure somebody is going to correct me for saying that because I didn't get some aspect of it right. But I, I think it's a really, really cool series. Um, and so I, I just wanted to shout that out. Awesome. Thank you so much. That, that sounds like a really cool thing. I might get that. My picks are Sidetracked Magazine. Find it at sidetracked.com. I get their newsletter pretty much every week and it's full of super awesome stories about places you can go after you're done going to a tech conference and when you want to get outside. Always inspires me as also their hard copies are pretty much the prettiest magazines I've ever seen in my life. They are absolutely beautiful, totally worth the money to get them shipped from the UK. This is the single best adventure magazine story thing coming out right now. And it's not on Instagram. I mean, it is on Instagram. You can, you can go there, but like you can also get a physical copy and read it alone without your Wi-Fi turned on. And that's really cool. Another one I want to talk about is In Defense of Degrowth by Georgos Kallis. Degrowth is a modern urban planning, social ecology slash philosophical economic movement around the fact that why do people believe that we need to grow all the time? Why is growth important? Why is 2% GDP every year the most like sole mission of our governments? Instead, what if we had different priorities? What if we decided that we wanted to not grow our cities out, but actually grow them in and put more walking paths in and remove advertising and make lives better for people who are currently alive instead of constantly extracting and mining and doing the things that we do as a species at a monumentally horrific level? Not that I'm biased. So George Gos- Georgos Callas is a really awesome person working on this. Um, the book, In Defense of Degrowth, is edited by a friend of mine, Aaron, um, and I suggest it. 
people can't see me just sort of nodding along this whole time. I'm not familiar with this uh, work, but this sounds amazing. I'm totally on board. I'm definitely going to check it out. Degrowth is really awesome. I like it a lot. I've tried to bring it up in my city planning council meetings and um, most of them, the people there were like, why are you here again? And I'm like, I, I'm, I'm interested. Uh, sorry. Um, are you in? I should <laughs> Montpelier, Vermont. Small oh, okay. okay. And the third pick was yellow legal pads. Just in general, yellow freaking legal pads, not online, not, not a website. The best thing about them is that I have this problem where because I used to write a lot and I try and write a lot, I always have to have the right notebook and the right moleskin. And I have to have the right Atom editor or the right Vim editor or whatever I'm doing on for coding. And it turns out that for my brain, a yellow legal pad literally means this is not useful. This will not remain. This is temporary. It's artificial. It's fake. This is what you use to jot down numbers when your friend's moms used to call your mom when you were 10. This is not an important piece of work, which allows my brain to say things and write things and plan things that isn't hampered by the material, which is awesome. Because a lot of the times when I'm writing Markdown or something, I end up having to put it into sections. And even that tiny bit of not being able to doodle or not being able to just dash off random sentences on the other side of the page block me. But having a yellow legal pad, I have discovered in my late 20s, I guess early 30s now, is really useful because it's just the perfect scrap paper. For those of you who are abroad, I don't know the equivalent, probably A4 paper from like something else. Here in America, we have this thing called the yellow legal pad. If you want the best example of it, see the movie A Few Good Men by Aaron Sorkin, where Tom Cruise runs into a room with a huge stack and says, now let's get to work. And it's the best montage ever. All right. Those are my picks. I'll stop waxing poetic about a crappy piece of paper. I guess that's it. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Thank you, Lou, for being on it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, and one more thing. Um, Justin Dorfman says hi. Oh, hi, Justin. Oh. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Justin is awesome. He used to work at Sticker Mole. I'm not sure what he's doing now. Yeah, he's over at uh, Stackshare, I believe. Awesome. Great community manager. Absolutely. All right. Take care, everyone. All right. See ya. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.